Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Virtual Voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm your host, Abigail Snyder, and this is the Armchair Travel Show, where you don't have to leave your comfort zone. If your comfort zone is your car, you stay there. If your comfort zone is your dorm room, you stay there. And if your comfort zone is your living room, you stay there. Last time on the Virtual Voyage, we were in Israel, floating in the salty and dense waters of the Dead Sea. Currently, we're taking a break from the water so that the salt doesn't completely suck out the moisture from inside of us. So come on, sit over here on the sand under this canopy, and let's recap what happened last time. So we left our hostel in Jerusalem and made the drive over to the Dead Sea. It's actually the lowest point on Earth. And it's interesting to me that Israel is home to the lowest point on Earth, and is it also home to the highest point on Earth as well? If we think in human terms, we'd say no, right? Towering 29,000-something feet above sea level, Mount Everest is, is without a doubt the highest point. But I would argue that Israel is actually home to both the lowest and highest points on Earth. Israel is the nation God gave to the Jewish nation. And with that, the Jews established the temple in Jerusalem, the temple being God's dwelling place on earth. In a spiritual sense, the temple is the highest point on earth because it's the closest man can get to God. It's far above the peak of Mount Everest. It's, it's far above even the cosmos as we know it. Being in Jerusalem and worshiping at the temple is the closest a man, specifically a, a Jew, can get to reaching into the highest heavens and communing with God. And after all, that is always what man has wanted, to reach God's dwelling place. Think back to even the Tower of Babel. Why was that constructed? Because men wanted to reach God. So with that said, it makes some sense to me why we could call Israel home to the lowest and highest points on earth. The lowest point in a literal sense, the Dead Sea is as low as you can go, and the highest point in a spiritual sense. Okay, back to the Dead Sea, which we're sitting here and staring out right now. Remember, the name sea is misleading. The Dead Sea is, in fact, just a large lake fed by the waters of the Jordan River. We learn that it is an extremely salty body of water, and you've been experiencing that as you've been floating in it, both in terms of your ability to float in this super dense water, also, in terms of the fact that you must take frequent breaks from being in the water, just like we're doing right now. Anyone remember just how much saltier this lake is compared to the ocean, the Atlantic Pacific Ocean, just, just the regular ocean, right? It's almost 10 times. That's right. 33% of the Dead Sea is salt compared to a 3% salt concentration in saltwater oceans. That's a lot. Last time... I mentioned that the Dead Sea's water rate uh, was, and it is, dropping. And I want to take a moment to emphasize just how significant this is. As the water recedes, dangerous sinkholes are left behind. I don't think we've seen any on our trip over here yet, or any that are at least known of, because they, be, they, be, they would be marked with signs over those spots if people know about a sinkhole, because sinkholes are so dangerous, they can actually swallow... Not only people, like quicksand maybe, but, but they're more significant. They can swallow roads, fields, and even buildings. 
And now environmentalists are even worried about the possibility of hotels along the Dead Sea. Just like the one we have to our back as we sit on the Dead Sea sand, they're worried about those hotels being swallowed by the sinkholes. And it's a fair concern, considering that there have been thousands of sinkholes in the last few decades. As the Dead Sea's water level drops about three feet or so per year, it leaves us concerned. Is there a way to get water into the Dead Sea? I mean, the Jordan River obviously is not getting enough water in for how much ends up evaporating from the Dead Sea. So the Jordan River obviously has some issues, but we can't simply blame the Jordan River alone. It feeds the Dead Sea, yes, but there's also no emptying spot for the Dead Sea on the other end, right? So water flows in, but it never flows out. And like I said, the Jordan maybe can be blamed a little bit, not completely, but I will say the Jordan River's water levels also appear to have decreased, especially in comparison with biblical times when it seems to have just been a raging river. Locals are concerned because they've grown up with the Dead Sea much farther out than it currently is. I know we're looking out at the Dead Sea right now, but where we're sitting on the sand, well, this all would have been covered with water. And even re remember the roads we drove to this beach on? Some of those roads, some parts of those roads, would actually have been covered by water only a few decades ago in, in some of our lifetimes. And many are concerned about future implications. Will the Dead Sea eventually reach a point when it literally will have no water? Well, we have many great minds working on a solution to make sure the Dead Sea remains for coming generations. For now, let's enjoy the experience of floating in the water of the Dead Sea that presently is here for us to enjoy. Hey, check out what's over there! Do you see a person that looks like they are, um, covered in mud? Yeah, your eyes are deceiving you. The Dead Sea mud is supposed to have such powerful healing effects that you will be able to find jars of collected mud at souvenir shops in Israel. People want to have that mud so badly that they will buy expensive, expensive, really expensive jars of it. Uh, that's no joke. People put the mud on their skin and even in their hair. Okay, if you want to go join in the fun and plaster yourself with some Dead Sea mud, go right ahead. Also know that you're partaking in a part of royalty when you do that. It's said that one of the first people to go to the Dead Sea and specifically enjoy the healing powers of the mud was the Queen of Sheba. Side note, if you don't remember her, the Queen of Sheba was from what we believe to be Southern Arabia, even though that is debated, and she visited King Solomon, wanting to test his knowledge and wisdom that God had given him. Remember, King Solomon uh, asked God for wisdom instead of riches and whatnot. He asked God specifically for wisdom, so the Queen of Sheba says, well, I'm going to see if, if that's really what you have, Solomon. Well, Solomon impressed her so much that she blessed him, and then she gave him gold, spices, and precious stones. The Bible actually says specifically that there was never such an abundance of spices given again like the Queen of Sheba gave to Solomon. Anyways, that's the Queen of Sheba, an important lady to say the least. And like I said, it's legend that she would come to the Dead Sea because she believed in its healing powers, which really science has confirmed at this point. And we know this, right? When you have a cold or something, I've heard my mom tell me, oh, go out to the salt water. It'll make you feel better. So uh, there's, there's some science backing that up. 
but the Queen of Sheba is not the end of royalty at the Dead Sea. Do you remember Cleopatra? She was an Egyptian queen. She actually created a spa at the Dead Sea, I'm not joking. And that still is not it. Today, famous celebrities are known to use Dead Sea products and even come here for the healing effects of the Dead Sea and the mud and the water. So if you want your taste of pop culture here on a trip to Israel and the Holy Land, uh, head on over there to the mud. Slather yourself up and feel rejuvenated here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. Whoa, we are muddy, that's for sure. In an effort to get the mud off of you, make sure you don't run into the Dead Sea and use that to wash off. Please, use the freshwater showers. There are public showers, freshwater showers all around here, and that's going to be the best way to wash off. I know none of you have had this uh, experience so far, which is great, but the Dead Sea can be so painful if you get it in your eyes. I remember our first time at the Dead Sea when I was in Israel with my family. My little brother was probably about six or seven at the time, and he did not have the best experience here, poor kid. Our tour guide was very clear that we needed to move slowly and not get water in our eyes. And I think my little brother may have tripped as he was walking out on the ramp with my dad out to, out to get out to, you know, farther water. And I think he just got water in his face, and he was not a happy camper his eyes stung for the rest of the day. I clearly remember that. I mean, it didn't affect his long-term vision or anything, but it was a painful afternoon and evening for him. So now that you've all demudded yourselves and are probably feeling super rejuvenated, I mean, come on, this is 100% better than those day spas you spend hundreds of dollars at, right? Okay, so let's go out and enjoy floating in the Dead Sea one last time it's getting to be early afternoon, and I don't want us to spend too much time out here in such a salty environment, even though we've all been super careful about taking the necessary breaks from the water every few minutes, and we've been drinking a lot of water. Honestly, you guys have been a fantastic group to bring to the Dead Sea. I'd give everyone an A plus on following instructions today. So go float, enjoy the experience of the Dead Sea, take it all in, so you can share all about it with your friends back home. I guarantee, when you tell people that you've been to Israel, there are some common places that everyone just seems to know about and then also asks you about, right? So Jerusalem, obviously, anytime I go to Israel and come back, everyone wants to know about Jerusalem. And then also they ask about Tel Aviv, probably because they hear about the Tel Aviv airport, but also it's a little strange to me because Tel Aviv is really not a biblical site. It's not even a historical site. Uh, it's more like the Las Vegas of Israel, and, and furthermore, until a hundred years ago, or about that, it was just a trash dump. It was later converted into the bustling city of Tel Aviv. And then another place I commonly get asked about is, indeed, the Dead Sea. You know, what is it like to float in the Dead Sea? How salty is it? How is the mud? <laughs> Are all your aches and pains gone? Man, I wish I could answer in the affirmative to that question. Don't we all? So all that to say, you can for sure bank on people asking you about the Dead Sea, and so go out there, enjoy it for another few minutes, and then come back under this canopy so I can tell you what needs to happen next before we get back on the bus. 
Hopefully you've all had a wonderful time here in the Dead Sea, but now it's time to clean up. I've spent a lot of time telling you about the Dead Sea's salt content and how you need to be careful. And now I must continue my PSA. So showers are the next step. Everyone needs to go over to the public showers located at the various stations around us. Look around. Yep, you'll see them around us, right? And there are people over there right now. So you're going to take off your hat and sunglasses and wash them, right? Just let them get rinsed by the nice fresh water. And you're also going to wash out your shoes. And I'm serious, wash them super well. It is the best way to prevent your shoes from getting ruined. And unfortunately, sorry to say, some of your shoes may not make it when you get back to the States and, and start to use them again. If they start falling apart about six months down the line from here or somewhere along those lines, it's probably because of the Dead Sea. You know, I remember coming to Israel with a nice pair of Chacos, you know, those, those hiking water shoes, and I wore them in the Dead Sea. And six months later, they were Chacos no more. I think I could have washed them more thoroughly. So part of that is on me, but also yeah, you kind of have to make a sacrifice in some ways. But anyways, wash them more than you think you need to. The salt gets in all those little cracks and crevices of the shoes, and if it is not washed out, it will just sit there and destroy your nice shoes. So for the sake of your shoes, which I know some people uh, are, are very concerned about their shoes, please wash them thoroughly. Here on the virtual voyage on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM, I'd really love to avoid being culpable for the destruction of your shoes. Next, wash off your body. Obviously, these are public showers, so you are showering fully clothed, but do the best you can to wash out your clothes and get your body mostly free of salt. And when you get back to your hostel room later tonight, you can wash off the rest. So wring out your shirt and shorts uh, and rinse off the exposed portions of your legs and arms, and that'll have to do for now. Showering should actually take about 5 to 10 minutes a person. And maybe that seems like a long time to the guys who can shower in 23 seconds. I, I only have that number in my head due to timing one of my brother's showers once. He was hoping to go for the world record, uh, but that didn't happen. So maybe it seems short to the girls. Okay, ladies, you know, we have to be honest here. We do love our long showers. Regardless of your general shower time, here at these showers at the Dead Sea, the point is rinse the salt away. And the water is fresh, but it is cold. Okay, so then you're going to head into the changing rooms just beyond the showers. So take your bag with your towel and your change of clothes. And I can't say these changing rooms are the cleanest place I've ever been to. You know, there's dirt and mud and sand all over the floor and it's hot and sticky. Not There's, there's no airflow in there. But it's kind of the, the price, so to speak, we have to pay for a wonderful morning at the Dead Sea. So get changed quickly so others can get in behind you and then come on back out and load up on the bus. Okay, well, we are all here. Uh, you all look a little tired. I am tired too. Being in the super salty water is, is fun and relaxing, but even if you're drinking a ton of water as we did, there's still something about the combination of being in the salt water and then also the sun that just leaves you longing for a nap. Well, you have about 15 minutes to nap if you'd like until we get to our next stop. And as we're on the way, I'm going to pass out some cold ice waters that I've, I've kept in the cooler up here. This morning, I ran to the mini market down the street from our hostel 
and got waters and ice and put it in this cooler because I knew you all might need the refreshment. Please, everyone take one. The next stop we're headed to, while we're here in the Dead Sea region, is a place that I actually mentioned last time. Remember how I pointed out that there was a mountain composed of salt on our drive down to the Dead Sea? And I also mentioned that this area is believed to be the location of Sodom and Gomorrah. So I want to explore that story a little bit with you as we head to this salt pillar that many claim to be Lot's wife. Now, I remember we briefly touched on this topic last time as we were driving, right? But I want to revisit the entire story of Sodom and Gomorrah's destruction, Lot, that was Abraham's nephew, and then also his wife, and why she was turned into a pillar of salt, as it's detailed in the Bible. Let's go back to the book of Genesis. We know there was a man named Abram, later Abraham, who was called by God to become the father of the Jewish nation. Abram had to leave the land he had lived in his entire life and move to a completely new one. The Bible details that he did all this in obedience to God, just as he had instructed him. He didn't know where he was going. He simply walked by faith. And Abram had a nephew, Lot, whom he took with him on the journey. And because both Abram and Lot were, were rich and, and had a lot of livestock they were traveling with, a lot of servants, a, a lot of family, right? Feuds began to actually arise between the herdsmen tending to Abram's flocks and then Lot's flocks. And so Abram tells Lot to just separate from him. And, and he also gives him the chance to choose the land he wants. And what that tells me is that Abram and Lot, there, there were frustrations and tensions arising, but Abram ultimately chose to be what we might say the bigger person and said, here, we obviously need to separate. We're still family. I still love you and choose what you'd like. But let's, let's go ahead and just separate here. So Lot ends up taking uh, Abram's wish to heart and, and he chooses the land that looks nicer. And the Bible says that he went to the area of Sodom. Now, some time passes and, and God comes to Abraham. By that point, his name has been changed to Abraham instead of Abram. And God tells Abraham that he is going to inspect Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's the area where Lot is living because God wants to see how grave the sins are of those cities. And Abraham, obviously knowing how wicked this place is, bargains with God to spare Sodom if he finds as little as 10 righteous people there. Maybe you know the story. It's the one where Abraham believes, I, uh, I believe, starts with 50 righteous people and then goes down all the way to 10, bargaining with God just that if there are 10 righteous people to spare the city. And God does agree. But unfortunately, God could not even find 10 righteous people in Sodom. And so he decides to destroy it. But Lot is warned to take his family and leave the area right before it is destroyed. We don't know if, if God's warning came to Lot because of Abraham's righteousness and God was honoring Abraham, or if it was because Lot was righteous and God wanted to save him. For whatever reason, Lot is warned to leave. So he, his daughters, and his wife, not his son-in-laws though, because they thought he was, he was basically being a fool. So anyways, just his daughters, his wife, and him, they escape just in time before the sulfur and the fire come raining down upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Although God's messengers, being angels, had commanded Lot and his family to not look back upon the destruction, Lot's wife did look back, and she was turned 
into a pillar of salt. Well, perfect timing, we're arriving now. This isn't exactly a class A tourist site. It's just a little spot off the side of the road where we're able to look up and see the rather large pillar. So let's all carefully shuffle out and talk more about the significance of Lot's wife being turned into a pillar of salt, the potential for this area to be Sodom and Gomorrah, and if that salt pillar up above us could just indeed be Lot's wife. But we are out of time for today, so you'll just have to tune back in next time for the answers to all those questions and more. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Virtual Voyage, the armchair travel show with me, Abigail, on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I hope you'll tune back in next time as we continue to explore the land of Israel and all its offerings.